Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. My guest today is John Noltner, a writer and photographer whose project, A Piece of My Mind, has produced three books, the latest of which is Portraits of Peace, Searching for Hope in a Divided America. John's freelance photography career took him all over the world for a variety of national magazines, but the 2008 recession, along with his increasing awareness of the growing divide in American society, called him to explore both the breadth of human experience and the things we have in common but tend to lose track of thanks to the relentless news cycle. I think John will leave you feeling much more hopeful about our world and how you might do your part to bring us closer. Here's our conversation. John, I am so grateful that you made some time to talk to me today because I have a feeling that this is going to be a great conversation. So thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me, Nancy. Sure. So the question that I start with for everybody is how you got your creative start. Were you a creative kid? Did you discover it later on? What's your story? Mm, I was a creative kid. And when I say creative At that age, I was interested in photography. I was interested in music. I was interested in theater. I did a little bit of sports, but nobody has ever called me a jock. I've always (laughs) been, I've always been with the artsy kids. Did anybody make that difficult for you? Or conversely, was there anybody who really thought that was great and encouraged you? Yes and yes. Um, (laughs) You know, it, I mean, everybody probably struggles when they're in middle school and high school in different ways. I, I never knew quite where I fit in, but the arts was the place where I could feel comfortable. The arts was the place where I felt accepted. Um, I don't think I was particularly weird, but I had my own, you know, little set of neuroses and yeah, there are there were mean people in my school too who made me feel self-conscious about that and probably some of my self-conscious nature was self-imposed too just out of out of sheer uncertainty but um the people in the other students in those uh, arts programs made me feel welcome the uh the instructors and the teachers made me feel like i had worth and merit and uh, as as I progressed, I received, you know, I had some success at it and received some some accolades, too, I guess, which which also helps one feel welcomed and, and uh, accepted. Was there anything in particular that those teachers did to make you feel like you had worth and merit? Because I feel like we don't hear those stories often enough. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think they paid attention to what was going on in my world. You know, they, and maybe this is part and parcel of what the arts can do, that it can open you up to, to this sort of sensitivity. But when I was having an off day, they knew it. When something was going on outside of the band room uh, that was making life difficult, the, the Sue Siegel knew it, right? And so they, they weren't even large gestures, but they were just these small gestures that let people know that they were paying attention, that you mattered, that I see you and I hear you and uh, you're, you're taking up space and that's good. Uh, those sorts of things in specific um, made a big difference. And, and also, um, I think in particular, my, my music teachers allowed themselves to be human with us. And again, maybe this is a creative thing that, that this range of human emotions that we all experience um, don't necessarily need to be tamped down, that it's okay to express the joy and the humor and the wit. And it's also okay to express the frustration and the, you know, and that, that, that balance of good and bad was really real. And they, they made room for us to do that too. I I hope that there are, you know, maybe some of your teachers will hear this because I just want to say to them that I love people like them. I feel like 
all of those things that you just described are things that any creative kid and even most creative adults need to hear. I mean, I got goosebumps listening to your list of, you know, you matter and and we see you and, and all of that, because I think we don't hear that enough. And yeah. so, especially as a former teacher myself, I love people who do that. I always try to do that for my kids and I love hearing about other people who do too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, something else just occurred to me as you were talking, um, you know, everything I still do in my, in my work life is a creative process, but now I work as a photographer and a writer, and those are essentially solitary creative processes. There is something, I think this is maybe part of what helped me feel like I belonged in those settings. There's something really powerful about doing a collective creative process. You know, as a as a middle schooler and as a high schooler, when I didn't know how to be, when I didn't know how to sort of socialize with other people, this was a thing that was in in a sense prescribed for me, but also I could participate in and it allowed me to be in community with people and create something really lovely together. And I think uh, to to a large extent that's what helped sustain me through those those difficult <laughs> middle and high school years. Yeah, it's a it's a great description. I'm superimposing your words over my experience as a choral singer, and that I think that's absolutely true. You know, mm. you have to come together. Everybody has to do their own part inside themselves, but it's definitely a collective effort that all. I don't know, with choral music in particular, probably also with with, you know, any kind of musical ensemble, you know, you all have to function as a single unit. It's kind of amazing that that even works when now that I'm thinking about it, you know, it you, really is. But you blink wrong. You can mess up the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And but but then collectively you create something that is bigger than all of you put together. Yeah. I love that. That's the magic part. Yeah. Yeah. That's the magic part. Yeah. So you did all of that in high school and then how did you go from high school to college to where you are now? Yeah. So because I had some success in music and because I was, um, you know, I don't know. I didn't question much when I was growing up. I just, I followed a lot of assumptions. You ought to do this. So I guess you do that. You should go to college. So I guess I go to college. I didn't start thinking for myself really until I was a year or so into college um, in any sort of substantive way. Um, so I started out as a music major because that's what everybody thought I was going to be. So that's what I was going to be. Um, but realized as much as I loved music, um, I realized that I didn't want that to be my path. I wasn't going to be able to perform commercially viably. I did. I had great technique and tone as a trumpet player, but I did not have the stratospheric range uh, up above high C that is really essential for if you're going to make a living performing. Um, and I didn't really want to teach high school uh, music. I couldn't, I think I would have loved working with the students who really wanted to be there. And I would have despised working with the students who were just there for an easy credit. And I don't think that my creative path would have, would have thrived in that situation. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, I, I, I wandered for a couple of years, still in college, uh, you know, knowing I was going to be a music major, got me to University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, where there was a good trumpet player. I knew, or, or a good trumpet professor, even when I stopped being a music major, I knew that I liked that school. I knew I liked that setting. So I stayed there, but I wandered through some different programs for a while. And eventually, um, I've got a really terminal case of curiosity about almost everything. Um, let's say a chronic case of <laughs> curiosity. <laughs> Let's not extrapolate beyond that. But um, what I found is that uh, the journalism program uh, and the journalism path allowed me the opportunity to explore all sorts of different things. You know, if I was interested in, uh, I don't know, clowns, I could go write a story about clowns and dig into that a little bit. If I was interested in kittens, um, you know, I could write a story about kittens. Um, 
it, it really became a vehicle that allowed me to explore the world. So uh, I had always been interested in photography, never really considered it as a career path as a younger person. Uh, but once I got into the journalism program, I, um, I settled in photography. My degree was in writing, uh, but between the art department and the journalism department, uh, I had more photo classes than I had writing classes. And that's what I decided my path was going to be. So graduated, backpacked through Europe, came back, and worked as a staff photographer at a daily paper, uh, moved to Minneapolis, worked at a commercial studio doing a lot of advertising things. And then 30, 25, 26 years ago, um, went out on my own as a freelance photographer. Uh, and I was shooting mostly for national magazines and Fortune 500 companies. And that was that was what I did for uh, a couple of decades. Yeah, that's, I'm imagining that. And I'm wondering how what I imagine that to be like is different from what it's actually like. Oh yeah, there are Facebook memes like that. Here's what my parents <laughs> think I do. Here's what I think I do, but here's what I actually do. Um, you know, like everything, you know, there's there's there there's the glory of it, and then there's the uh, you know, you're also the custodian and the accountant and the the marketing person, and so probably thirty percent of what I did as a freelance photographer was the stuff that I loved. You know, and the other 70% was the stuff you do just to make it happen, you know, just to just to get the next job, just some jobs you shot because they paid you well, even if they were boring. Uh, and some jobs you shot, even if they didn't pay you hardly anything at all, because they'd be amazing, you know. And so I was lucky enough to do mostly human interest stories and um you know, and, and travel stuff. So I would, I would photograph in luxurious spas in the penthouse downtown in Chicago and in these great restaurants and, and, and these beautiful food dishes. Uh, and I would photograph in developing countries when a service program went down there to rebuild uh, a house for some woman who lost hers during a hurricane, you know, so it was, it was a pretty, wide range of subject matter. Uh, I've, I've been to 48 of our 50 states. I've been to 38 different countries around the world. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I don't care if I was photographing in Cuba or if I was the middle, in the middle of central Kansas. Um, I found it all interesting and I loved it. And it, it was great until it wasn't. Uh, you know, the, the recession of 2008, 2009, I like to say that handed me some free time. <laughs> I, you know, we were, we were going a hundred miles an hour and then it all just stopped. Um, and I had to figure out what to do with that, you know, um, a economically, because this is how we made our living, uh, B, um, emotionally and creatively, because this is how I felt like I had some self-worth, right? I, I loved the process of creating and doing the photography. I also loved the phone ringing and people telling me I did something neat and they wanted me to help them with their project, right? It felt good when somebody said, man, we could pick any photographer in the world and we're going to pick you. Um, well, I must be doing something right. You know, that that was edifying and that, that, that was, um, fulfilling. So, so all of those things, uh, stopped. And if I was, you know, if I was going to have a midlife crisis, that would have been a pretty good time to do. One. <laughs> um, but, you know, I wanted to find a creative way to, to fill that free time. And so I started working on this project, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that started as this small little personal thing 12 years ago. And now it's grown into everything that I do. And, and that project is called a piece of my mind. And so um, P-E-A-C-E, -E, that kind of piece. And at that same time that I was handed this free time, I was also increasingly frustrated with the quality of our national dialogue. I was concerned about all the things that ask us to look at what can separate us, if it's politics, ethnicity, religion, gender, class, whatever. Um, by the way, it hasn't gotten better 
in these last 12 years. No. Uh, but, but I wondered if there was something I could do with my photography and storytelling instead to remember what connects us, to try to rediscover that common humanity that we all share. And so I just, I just started talking to people. You know, I, um, I would interview people, you know, much like this, sit down for an hour long conversation and record it. Then because I'm a photographer, I would shoot a still portrait and, um, it started out as nothing, just these conversations, but it slowly built into this body of work, um, to the point where now we have three books of these stories and we've got four traveling exhibits and we go around the country, um, and use these stories to, encourage people to listen deeply and to challenge their own expectations and to uh, commit to showing up and, and, and staying at the table in the midst of all of these really contentious times. And um, boy, I can't imagine doing anything else now. I bet. Cause that, that whole thing just, you know, sounds like it sounds exactly like the kind of thing that would take over your life once you started doing it. I mean, it, it's not really a stretch to me to say, yeah, I, if I started doing that, I bet that's what would happen to me too. I mean, how, how could it not? Yeah. You know, when I was shooting travel photography, I loved, you know, photographing pie shops and Adirondack chairs on the porch, looking out at a pretty sunset and that's all great. But when we can talk about ways to build relationships and bridge divides and, you know, heal our, our racial wounds in this country, that, I mean, that stuff feels pretty real and pretty important. And, um, I don't know, I suppose I still like photographing a nice looking rhubarb pie with a, a golden crust and steam coming off of it. But this other stuff really just draws me in and it, but, but again, like, like, uh, when I was in journalism school, this has become my ticket to have all of these really fascinating conversations to sit down with someone who marched with Dr. King back in the day from Selma to Montgomery to sit down with someone who's been through our prison system or who has climbed Mount Everest uh, while being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis or somebody who's working with um, you know, Alvaro and Ciso, who's placing crosses in the Sonoran Desert uh, to mark the spots where migrants have uh, died on their journey uh, into America. You know, these things um, help me understand the world in new and transformative ways. And the, the, the ticket to have access to these sorts of conversations because of the project that we've developed um, is, is, is just an amazing luxury. And I feel honored to be able to, to do that. Have you ever had any trouble getting someone to tell you their story as part of this project? Mm, yeah, interesting uh, question. And I'll tell you that it has gotten easier over time as the project has developed a track record and as people are able to look at the body of work and understand that I treat people fairly. Uh, and, and my goal is to amplify their voice and let them be heard, whether it is... Uh, someone I agree with politically or not. Um, you know, I think as people look at that and see that, yes, I've talked to wounded veterans and I've talked to cops and I've talked to activists and I've talked to, you know, um, drag queens and, you know, the, this whole broad spectrum of who we are as, as human beings, um, people can see that and they, they see the way I, I have tried to treat everybody with dignity and respect in this process. And so when they can see that, uh, they feel comfortable that I'm going to also treat them that way, I think, is how it plays out. Early in the project, when I didn't have that track record, if I would try to explain it to people, uh, some people would be resistant. They're like, ah, that sounds like a that sounds like a hit job. You know, that sounds like you're trying to make fun of me. That sounds like you're going to set me up. Uh, things like that. And people did shy away at times, uh, depending on, on uh, how they perceived me and how they thought I would perceive them. So that's, that's become easier. I'll tell you that there was, there was one story and it sort of breaks my heart that I wasn't able to tell it. When we were down along the border, uh, we happened to be in Arizona last January when the construction on the wall ended. 
and we we just east of Nogales, Arizona, we found the place where construction ended, and we were able to drive out there with our four wheel drive and uh, could see where that wall went from a thirty foot steel plate to four strands of barbed wire out in the middle of the desert. And um, you know, I interviewed a border patrol agent and activists and asylum seekers and ranchers, and we were camped next to a guy from Minnesota, where I'm from, who had driven his family down uh, so that he could work construction on the wall. And he got there and a week later, they shut down the construction. Uh, He didn't know what he was gonna do for work. And he said, well, maybe I could go back up north and work on the pipeline, but they'll probably shut that down too, which they did. Uh, And he found himself in a really difficult bind. And he and I, probably disagreed on a lot of political issues. Uh, But I invited him to be a part of this project. Um, I think he was in such a state of turmoil and distress that he didn't feel like he could discuss it privately or publicly. And he, so he, he said no, but I really felt like that would have been an important story to include in the conversation because yeah, his livelihood was affected by some of these political decisions and, and how was that going to impact him and his, his family? So every once in a while, there are stories I would like to tell, uh, that I haven't been able to, uh, but I should say, I haven't been able to yet, you know, because that's just a, that's just a reminder to me that I have to find another way to try to share that perspective, to try to wrap that voice into this collection of many voices as we try to figure out who we are as a country and how we can live better together. That's yeah. Wow. <laughs> so 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 let me just let me just let me just pile on that a little bit and say sure. say that there are there are several times in the development of this project where people have pointed out to me um my own blind spots or my shortcomings. You know, there was a, there was a, a, an Ojibwe woman after a talk that came and said, well, why don't I see any indigenous voices in this project? Do I not matter? Uh, at, at which point I, as the artist could either become defensive and say, Hey, this is my project. Don't tell me how to do this. Or I could be a reasonable human being and respond by saying, Oh man, you're right. That is, that is an unfortunate oversight on my part. Um, I will be intentional about inviting that voice in. In fact, let's go one step further. Can you help me? Who should I talk to? What do I need to hear? What, what have I not paid enough attention to? You know, a mother with a child with a disability who said, I don't see anybody in your project who has a physical disability. Why isn't our voice being heard here? At which point I have to say, you know, you're right. And I'm sorry, I'm going to try to do better. And let me, you know, let's see how we can figure this out together. That's an ever evolving thing. So I, I, ta- I, I joked about, you know, a drag queen earlier when I was in Oregon and somebody, I was talking to somebody and they knew I was going to Portland and they said, well, how would you like to interview the oldest performing drag queen in the world? And I said, hell yeah, I want to interview the oldest performing drag queen in the world because that was a voice and a perspective and an experience that I had not um, been able to sort of explore in a conversation before in such a direct way. Uh, and so this is the way the project grows. And um, well, I'm going to stop talking there for a minute and let you go because <laughs> I could just go on a roll, but um, where should we, what? Yeah, uh, what? I, I'm just thinking that this feels like the most profound and unexpected educational journey anyone could take Mm. because you're constantly exposing yourself to all of those things and you're making that intentional choice to say, I want to hear stories from people that I wouldn't have thought of and also having to admit that you might not have thought of them, but also people that I disagree with. I, I mean, that, that is, a level of awareness and consciousness that way too many of us don't have. And I think also the lack of it contributes to the problem that you're trying to address. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt, we get surrounded by people who look like us and work like us and live like us. And, 
you, you get in that bubble and pretty soon you don't even know what you don't know. And, um, you know, and that you get used to that. I mean, you get numb from that, but mm -hmm. you don't know that you've gotten numb. And so it, it, you're right. This has been a journey of discovery of sort of peeling back these layers and then going, Oh my God, what else don't I know? Oh my God, what else? What else is there out there? I mean, I am I am the poster child of privilege, right? I am a middle-aged white guy from middle America with, you know, two kids and, you know, lived in the suburbs and well, now I live in a van, but uh, but but I am the poster child of privilege. So, uh and very often I'm interviewing people who don't share that same level of privilege, but but the question for me is uh twofold. One, what do I do with that privilege? How do I use that in service to the bigger world? Um, and two, how do I make sure that as I'm sharing these other stories, that I do it with integrity and I do it in a way that minimizes my filter and amplifies the voices of the people who sometimes uh, don't get heard in mainstream America these ideas that don't get heard in mainstream America as uh, clearly as they should. Yeah. So how have you taken that on? I mean, what, what turns out to work for you with that particular uh, endeavor or part of it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, um, it's, it, it's an organic process. I'm, I am more artist than I am uh, analyst, I guess. Uh, but it, it becomes an act of deep listening, of paying attention, of reading the room, of, of finding ways to ask difficult questions uh, gently so that it um, acknowledges and preserves the dignity of the person that I'm engaged with. Uh, when I edit a story, I probably... Uh, agonize over that process more than is necessary. But, but again, I want to make sure that, that I am reflecting this person's story as they would want to be reflected in the world. And, um, my, my single best gauge of success is really, uh, the feedback I get from the subjects and they universally say one of two things. They either say, yep, that's what I was trying to say that day, or you made me sound smarter than I thought I was on that day. You know, it. so I wear that as a badge of honor that, um, that the people who I've interviewed, the stories that we share, that they feel, again, seen and heard and valued, that they can look at it and say, yeah, that's, that is, he sees me. That is who I think I am. Um, and, and that's really my only measure, but it's a, it's a constant process of self-reflection and, uh, quiet assessment and honest, um, uh, revisiting of things to making sure that you're hitting the mark. It is more of an art than a science, but it, it takes attention and it takes time. Yeah. It's, it's a very deliberate process. It's not, it's not something you can just kind of phone in. No, it, it isn't. And let me, <clears throat> let me add one more thing onto that, which is um, when I was putting together my second book. So my first book was all stories from Minnesota where, where I was living and working. Um, it has a larger worldview than that because of who the people are, but all sort of centered here in this geography. The second book, we drove 40,000 miles across the country gathering these same sorts of stories. Um, and when it was time to find a publisher, my first book was self-published. I really thought maybe I had enough of a track record. I'd find a publisher for that second book. And I did have an offer from a publisher and they're a faith-based publisher, which is fine because I'm a faith-based person, but um, they were way more conservative than me. And they said, well, John, we'd love to publish your book. Um, if you would just remove the voices of the gay and the lesbian people from it. <clears throat> and I said, what? <laughs> and, and I said, wait a minute. So you want me to take this project, which is rooted in the notion 
of listening to everybody, whether you agree with them or not. And then you want me to remove the voices you disagree with. And they said, yeah. And I said, no, <laughs> that's not okay. Because I mean, how, how would I have defended that decision to the gay and the lesbian folks who shared their story? How do you know, and they're like, well, you can make the exhibit whatever you want, but just in the book, we're good. I'm like, no, that makes you're you're gutting the integrity and the intention of the entire project. So that was a no brainer. I'm like, no, bye bye. Go away. Um, and we self-published again. Uh, the day after we held our release party, I was speaking to a bunch of fifth grade students at a school and explaining the project. And one little girl raised her hand and she said, well, have you ever talked to somebody from a family where there's a mom and a dad, uh, but they're the same thing? And I said, what? <laughs> and she, and she, she asked the question again. And I said, and I looked over at the teacher and I said, do you, do you mean a gay or lesbian couple? And she goes, yeah. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Laura Patey is the second story in our book and she's married to to, to Lee and they've been married for 30 years and they adopted two kids out of the foster care system and they raised them as their own. And yeah, Laura's the, Laura's the second story in our book. And the kid said, okay, thanks. And sat there for a beat and then said almost under her breath, she goes, cause I have two moms. And I thought, Oh, so how would I explain to her? Well, yeah, sure. We've talked to those people, but we don't put them in the book. Yeah. You know, and again, here, here's that same thing, that ability to say to her, I see you, I hear you, and you matter is one of the most powerful things I think we can do for one another. Absolutely. And so it's, it's imperative to me that all of the people I encounter for this project uh, who have been so kind to share their stories, to bear their souls publicly. Uh, for these conversations that I treat those with dignity and respect and honor, because that's what humans should do for one another. Amen to that. Not that I always get it right. Just to be clear, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just as messed up as the rest of us, but just because we know we're going to mess up doesn't mean we should stop trying. And that's a, we need to aim high if we're going to be able to hit it. Yes, absolutely. So. You mentioned listening, which was something that I have been wanting to ask you about because I feel like listening is a lost art. And I can't lie, in the three plus years that I've been doing this podcast, I have really started to appreciate how much of a lost art it is because I pay more attention while I'm interviewing somebody than I probably do in most of the rest of my day whatever yeah. that says about me, I don't know, but you know, it's, it's a skill that, that I've definitely really had to hone in order to, to do this. And so I've noticed that. And it's also made me realize, you know, just how much in general, we really don't listen, especially now that most of us are staring at a screen most of the time, we're trying to do 17 things. And I'm just wondering what, what you've learned about the art of listening through this process. Mm. Yeah, you know, I I have heard it said that we spend the first two years of our life learning how to speak and the rest of our lives learning how to listen, but we never quite get that right. And I think what I have learned is that it's an intentional act. Um, what I have learned, you know, that, that, that that's a broad and sweeping uh, statement, but what I've learned from a practical standpoint uh, is a willingness to sit in silence for a little bit. Uh, I have learned to let go of the need to respond immediately and leave that dead space because sometimes if you speak too quickly, you're going to step on that beautiful next thing that somebody's going to say. Um, I've learned that if you sit there quietly, uh, <laughs> people squirm a little bit and then they, you know, that sounds manipulative, but, but then, but, and it's not, but it is an opportunity for them to dig a little bit deeper, to look a little bit further um, and, and fill that dead air 
with something else. And so often that something else is the most powerful part of the conversation. If you leave the space for it to unfold, you know, in that process of listening, like what, what you're doing, the, it's important to ask good questions. Um, but if you worry too much about what's my next question, what's the next thing, um, you can lose your focus too, right? Then you're not actually listening. But my favorite questions have become uh, just, what do you mean by that? Uh, and tell me more. I know that's not a question, but it's a statement. Tell me, it's an invitation. Um, because people will, you know, you ask, what about this? And they say that, and that's the end of their answer. But there's more. And if you just dig in a little bit and you make the space for them to share more people, if they feel like you're paying attention, people will share powerful things. And so I have, I have learned the patience to do that. And I have also learned the humility to uh, admit when I don't know what to do next, when we're in when I'm in a really difficult conversation with somebody who's in a sharing a particularly painful story, if I'm sitting with a woman who is sharing a story about, you know, sexual violence uh, and, and having to try to heal from that um, again, as a middle-aged guy, there are times when I've just had to say, you know, I got to be honest. I don't, I don't know where to go from here. I don't know how to respond to that story that you just shared. What, what else do I need to know? What else should I be thinking about? Um, or where do you want to take this? And that, that humility to say, you know, I'm, I'm human too. And I'm, I'm stuck. Help me understand. Um, you know, that can be a really powerful way to connect. I think if we expect other people to be vulnerable with us and let their guard down with us, and if we're on, I mean, that's when con deep connection happens. Um, then we have to be willing to be vulnerable like that on our side. I mean, you can't, you can't sit up on a big pedestal and uh, with, with a fancy tie and uh, you know, your, your clipboard and hope that someone's going to be real and authentic with you. Um, you better, you better give some of that back in the process. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's that was a long answer to sure. your question. Wasn't it? Was it was a great answer. And I <laughs> love that, you know, the the whole what do what do i need to to ask i don't know how to respond you know tell me what more there is it it really goes back to what you were saying when people would say you know why am i not represented here it's it's really a very similar kind of listening it's it's not just listening to the story it's listening to where i don't have the frame of reference and need to know more in order to do the whole job better rather than just, I want to know your particular tale. I mean, there's, there's really two kinds of listening in there. And I think that it's good to talk about them both. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there, there can be something extractive about the process. If it's done poorly, there can be, a way to strip mine a conversation that leaves, you know, the landscape devastated, or there can be a way to have a holistic engagement so that everybody is a little richer for it in the end. And, you know, nobody owes me an explanation of what it feels like to be black in America today. But if that's a conversation they want to have, I want to hear it. You know, I want to engage and I want to, I want to explore it with them. And so in our conversations, I don't demand, um, I invite. And if it's a place a person wants to go, then I want to go there too. Um, you know, there was a woman who, oh man, names. Sometimes there are so many names in my head. Uh, Nat is, uh, you know, an artist and a mother and an activist and a circus performer and a sex worker and specifically a dominatrix. Um, I knew that going into the conversation, but I don't lead with that. When we start the conversation, that's not the right way to 
have a meaningful conversation. I go, I go into every interview and my first question after tell me how to say your name and where are we sitting today? My first question is if I didn't know anything about you, what would you want me to know? What do you want me to understand? And that allows a person to set their own parameters, to define themselves for how the world's going to see them and to open the door to further conversation. So then it's my job to pay attention and say, well, you, you brought this up. Do you want to share more about that? Tell me what that's like. This is way outside of my experience. But if you'd like to, you know, tell us more, I'd be interested in hearing. And it, it allows people to control um, the direction of the conversation. And I find it a really empowering and respectful part of the process. Yeah, there's a humility to that that I think opens up lots of possibilities that you wouldn't have if, you know, as you said, you demanded rather than inviting. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, you know, people, people have, people walk around this world with innate wisdom in them that they really want to share. Yeah, man, I've had all these experiences and I want to, you know, share them with the world. We don't always have the opportunity to do that. So if, if we can create a platform where that can happen, and a venue where that can unfold, I think people find that really powerful. And uh, I mean, it's 70% of the time, um, the people I'm interviewing or me wind up in tears at some point, um, mostly both of us. Uh, I'm sort of prone to it anyway, but it's it's it feels like rich territory to be able to have those sorts of real conversations with people from all different backgrounds. Yeah. And I think that the fact that it hits you that way is also a sign that you're interacting on a level much more profound than most of us do on a regular basis. So it pulls up that kind of emotional reaction on top of everything else. And I think, you know, you talk about people walking around with, with innate wisdom. I think a lot of people don't realize how much of that innate wisdom they have, which is where the brilliance of the extended silence, which highlights how uncomfortable we are with silence, but also, you know, it gives the chance for them to actually rediscover things that they might not think about on a regular basis, but that they, they know that, you know, we don't always give ourselves enough credit for knowing those things. I've had people say that to me at the at, at the end of interviews, like I never really had to say these things out loud before, or I've never even, you know, considered this in a real way before. And and when that happens, when we're forced to articulate these ideas, I think it helps uh, develop clarity around them in our own minds. I mean, certainly I walk around with fuzzy notions in my head all day long, and I think I know how I feel about this, that, or the other thing, but until I have to say it out loud, um, they can live in this amorphous nebulous state in my head. But, but yeah, when you have to articulate them, they, they gain a clarity. And sometimes, sometimes I say these things out loud, uh, that I think made sense in my head. And I'm like, wait a minute, that no, that's not quite right. And it allows you to sort of revisit and reframe and, and, and reshape it a little bit. And I think that's, a, that's an exercise that we don't always uh, make use of. I mean, it, it happens for me in conversation, but it also happens for me in journaling and in writing and, 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 and that sort of thing. Uh, and it's, it's sort of a quiet, reflection and revisiting of what are my core values and my my mission and my 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 purpose in the world uh and these conversations help help me understand that too yeah i i think the world would be a much better place if we all approached it from that level of humble curiosity and self-reflection and i keep trying to do more of that and i'm hoping that i'll be able to encourage other people to engage at least with themselves in that kind of way, if not with everybody else. So I'm hoping that there's some crossover. <laughs> why do you, why do you think that's so hard for us to do? Yeah. I think because, you know, we, and I'll totally want to hear what you think about this too, obviously, but 
the thing that comes to mind off the top of my head is not only are we now so busy looking at screens and so busy multitasking with everything and so much of what's on those screens is the very same divisive stuff that spurred you into this project that I think we just are so used to that very surface instant you know very quick level of interacting with things that the idea of looking deeper not only takes time that we think we don't have but it's just like wait you you want me to do what you want but i'm busy scrolling through instagram you know i can look at 17 that's probably a low estimate posts per minute <laughs> right know? and that's got my attention and so the idea of going any deeper and actually really looking at, at what might be going on and even finding out the things that you know that you don't know that you know is terrifying because we don't engage that way most of the time. That's my first thought. I don't know what I like you think. It. Yeah, I like it. I don't I don't disagree with any of that. I think that's that's spot on. Um I think also I I have a sense that, um, I mean, it's scary to be vulnerable. I mean, it's scary to, like you say, admit what you don't know and, and, and all these things. And we have a tendency to put up these protective barriers to defend ourselves from being hurt, from being misunderstood, from being, uh, attacked, whatever. And, um, but when we put up those barriers, we also are insulating ourselves from the very richest types of human engagements that we might encounter. And I think we, we do ourselves a disservice by trying to protect ourselves too much. You know, what I, what I think is really interesting is, um, you know, I, I love conversations around interfaith dialogue and i my my tradition is 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 christian but if i have a conversation with a muslim person that doesn't make me any less christian and it doesn't threaten my ideology because they believe something else and i can i can let go of the need to change somebody's idea and just try to understand their perspective a little bit better doesn't mean i'm going to convert to Islam doesn't mean I'm going to convert to Buddhism. Uh, but there are, I mean, I wish that I had the discipline to be able to pray five times a day, like <laughs> my Muslim brothers and sisters do. I wish that uh, I was able to integrate my spirituality into my everyday life in the way that I saw my Buddhist taxi driver doing in Northern, uh, Northern Thailand when I was there. You know, there, there is beauty and wisdom in all of this stuff. And if we can take time to see that and hear that and acknowledge it and celebrate it, maybe we don't have to spend so much time beating our heads against the wall, um, changing it. Yeah. And I think that I, I was, as you were saying that, I was sitting here thinking, is there any is there any situation where more understanding is not a good thing? <laughs> and at least off the top of my head, I couldn't come up with one. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, okay. So what's, what's the worst that can happen if you are a Christian sitting down to talk to a Muslim? I mean, really, I think the, the only thing that, I shouldn't say this this way because I'm going to end up speaking for people and that's not what I want to do. But if you walk out of that conversation with a better understanding of someone else and where they're coming from and what they believe and why they believe it, odds are good it's going to make you see your own belief system in a different light. Not necessarily yeah. a worse light or a better light, just a different light. And there's you might understand it a little too. bit more. Right. Yeah. And I think that people think that they already understand it or understand it as much as they need to and are afraid that understanding someone else's belief system will challenge theirs in a way that 
for whatever reason scares them. And I think that's a shame because I don't think that's likely to happen if you go in with genuine curiosity. If you go in with antagonism, then all bets are off. Yeah, right. But but if you go in with genuine curiosity, I think you're so much more likely to find a middle ground and see new angles on their belief system and yours that just make the whole experience richer, not poorer. It it frustrates me that people get scared by things like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I find it, um, I mean, as a freelance photographer, back when I was shooting so much travel stuff, I, I really did. You know, I loved being in the city. I loved being in the country. I loved being in the desert. I loved being in the jungle. And, and, and there was, there was beauty in all of that. I came, I came to realize through my job that people hired me to find beauty in unexpected places. Yeah, you know, it was my job to see good where others might struggle to, to identify it. And and I think in a lot of ways, um, this is what I'm still doing in a different way, you know, in, in, a, in a human way, that there, there's beauty and wisdom all around us if we can take the time to, to see it. You know, uh, somebody asked me during, I do a lot of keynote speeches. I go to colleges and churches and conferences. And, and somebody asked me at the end of one of my talks, if I had ever really changed anybody's mind about any important social issue. And I sort of scratched my head for a little bit and I said, well, probably not, but I also don't know if that's the goal. The goal is not to convince someone to believe something else. The goal is for us to engage together. And hopefully I will come to realize that that other person is not the enemy and they will realize that I'm not the enemy and that actually there's maybe some humanity that wells up in between the two of us. And we can at least acknowledge that about each other, you know, because in this polarized silo world that we live in, holy crap, you can turn on the radio and listen to uh, somebody spewing out stuff and they will spend 90% of their time talking about why that other guy is an idiot and why those people are ruining the world and why they're the problem with America. And holy moly, if you listen to that all day, you know, that's going to, that's, that's corrosive. Mm -hmm. And if we can, if we can spend some of that energy recognizing some subtle difference and some nuanced truth in between us and recognize that you may, we may disagree, but you're not my mortal enemy. Um, you know, I think that might work out pretty good if we tried some of that. Yeah. What a concept. What a weird idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I know, I know. I mean, I, I get, I get as frustrated as anybody. And when I turn on the television, I feel hopeless, just like everybody else. But then I, I go out and I talk to more people in person, especially if there's someone that I think is irritating or, or some group that, that, that I I'm struggling with some idea that I'm struggling with. I sit down and I talk to somebody and I do an interview and I come away going, all right, the world's not going to end. We might be okay here. We can find a way through this. And, but, but if I sat in those echo chambers and I filled my head with that stuff, I, I mean, I think it'll, it, it will suck all of the hope out of you and do nothing to work towards a pragmatic solution. Yeah. And I think that's a, an intentional choice, just like the listening and, you know, you have to decide this is not how I want to spend my time. I want to spend my time focusing on something that is more productive, brings me more hope, makes me feel better about the world. It's probably not scrolling through 17 Instagram posts in a minute. A minute. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? uh, and I, well, Oh, you go. Okay. I was actually going to ask you if traveling as you know, when you were doing photography, but even with this project had influenced how you see the project, how you see the world, you may have already just answered that because I was sitting there thinking that's, that's what I was just going to ask you, but <laughs> I don't know if you have any, anything else to add to that or not. Yeah. I have a couple of things to add to that. <laughs> um, funny you should ask. Um, no, I think, uh, 
So when I was doing my photography, I might be photographing a pediatric nephrology department uh, with parents who are having these intricate surgeries on their little kids, wondering if they're going to make it or not. You know, we'll be talking to them one day and photographing them and then photographing pig farmers the next day and then uh, barge workers the day after that. And these just wildly different kinds of people. Um, but I enjoyed all of it. Like I just, it, it was, it was rich and interesting. And so I think it helped me understand uh, that there are all of these different worlds out in the world. You know, people, people who are living in these, these little demographic pockets, having this experience, and then you turn over there and it's that experience, but they're, they're all beautiful. And I sort of celebrated that, that experience every single time. And I think that's part of what would pain me when I would see angry rhetoric sort of, you know, blasting this group or blasting that group. And I wanted, I wanted to respond to that in some way. I was, before I started this project, I was really expending a ridiculous amount of human energy being frustrated at the news cycle and the politics cycle. Then I was doing an a travel assignment for the New York Daily News, and I was photographing in Sedona, Arizona. And the, the, the travel story concept was Earth, Wind, and Fire, the old band. Uh, but our version of Earth would be hiking through the landscape in Sedona. Wind was uh, traveling in a hot air balloon over the desert at sunrise. Fire was a spiritual quest. And this, which is more new agey than I am, but this spiritual quest, um, uh, we hired a guy named Rahelio who led my wife on a dream journey. Uh, so she's laying on the rock and he's playing a drum over her. Unfortunately, it was at this beautiful place called Airport Mesa. And there were like 50 other people watching the sunset and looking over at Karen, watching her have her dream journey, which can be a little distracting when you're trying to have a dream journey. Yeah. But so she maybe didn't have the profound epiphany that I did, but as I was photographing, I'm listening to what Rogelio is saying. And he said this thing that I'm pretty sure I've heard before, but at that time and place, I heard it anew. And he said, don't work against the things that you hate, but work for the things you love. And this light bulb went off in my head and I'm like, oh, because I was struggling against this anger and divisiveness that I saw. Rather than yelling back at that anger and divisiveness, I thought, well, what if I create the antithesis of that? What if I create this calm and respectful space where we can have conversation across difference? And that, that was really the start of a piece of my mind. Um, and, and I think that that saying, which probably everyone in the world has heard, I don't know, but for I heard it new that day. Don't work against the things you hate, work for the things you love. And it was just a sea change for me. Yeah. Because all of that divisive stuff is all about focusing on what you hate. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. And, and when you look for it, you see all sorts of it, <laughs> right. things to hate. But it turns out when you look for the good things, when you make that a practice, um, you start seeing all sorts of that. And, and a piece of my mind is not about hiding from the difficult realities of the world. It's not about burying your head in the sand and, you know, singing about daisies and rainbows. Uh, it's about, it's about an honest assessment of the struggles that we have, but um, approaching it with uh, grace and hope and belief that something better is possible. You know, so this, this, this last year and a half, uh, Karen and I sold our house where we lived for 30 years in uh, Minnesota, and we bought an RV and we hit the road to dig into, to, to continue to gather stories and to dig into some of this really challenging social stuff that we're dealing with. And so we're 
I mean, we're, we're going into the middle of it. So we're going down along the border to talk about immigration. We're going into Mississippi to talk about relocating Confederate monuments. We're going into uh, northern Minnesota to talk about indigenous uh, sovereignty. We're going into uh, Skid Row to talk about housing security. We're working with veterans around PTSD. And th- these these really difficult, challenging issues but always looking for people who are finding creative solutions to these really complex challenges. Always the belief that we can amplify these stories of success in the hopes that we can use those as our roadmap and as our model for how we move forward. You know, and it's, 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 all of these things are a slow process. You know, you don't fix the world with one more interview. You don't fix the world. But if you can shift the needle a little bit, if you can help one person feel seen, if you can help uh, one person realize that they're not alone in their experience, that other people have been through this too, uh, offer people some little life raft to hold on to, to get through to that next day. Um, I mean, I can't, I can't change. U.S. policy toward what Russia is doing in the Ukraine, but I can have a conversation with somebody who has been a refugee and talk about that experience of what it, what happens when your whole world falls apart in a heartbeat. Uh, poss- maybe we can even shift somebody's heart to say, boy, maybe we should make room for couple of those people in our community because man i'd hate if that happened to me you know these small little persistent changes i think um they're the only things i know how to control yeah but it's a beautiful thing to try to control yeah a little bit yeah and i will you know be putting all of all of your links and everything in the show notes so that everybody can come follow you and and see what you're up to because I certainly want to keep tabs on what you're up to at this point. Oh yeah. We're on all the things, all the faith. Well, no, I don't know how to do TikTok. I don't know how to do <laughs> other things that I don't even know the name of, but Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And uh, you know, um, we're super excited about our new van whose name is Vinny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, be, because we also love art in our family um, and our van goes, it's, it's Vinny Van Gogh. Uh, I know it's totally dorky. I apologize, but, um, but, uh, you know, you can, you can see, uh, how we've outfitted Vinny and where we're going next and the stories that we want to explore, uh, all in the hopes that we can figure out how to live better together somehow. That's fantastic. So I know you need to get going, but I want to ask you one other question, which in a way, I think that anybody who really wants to to dig into this can find lots of these throughout this interview, but I've started adding journaling prompts to the pep talk episodes that I release in between interviews. And since Uh you ask a lot of questions and you've asked lots of good questions here so far, I'm wondering what, what question do you think that we should be asking ourselves, but are not? Hmm. That's interesting. And let me preface my response by saying, uh, as we travel around the country and we do programming in these different places, uh, I have a couple different formats and we do these long form interviews with people, but we also at conferences and colleges and community centers, we set up these sort of pop-up studios and we ask a prompt and we ask people to respond in 25 words or less and we shoot a black and white portrait and we combine their picture with their words and by the end of the day like these long form interviews i can only do one a day uh a couple a week um these pop-up studios if we do a day we might get 40 or 50 or 60 responses from people you know we did this at the intersection of 38th and chicago uh in Minneapolis right after George Floyd was died and we or after George Floyd was killed and we just asked people what do you want to say you know and and created an open forum a public art setting for people to share their thoughts we worked with veterans around PTSD and we said what do you want the world to understand uh we just worked with uh college students and asked um what gives you hope 
you know, so we'll change that prompt. Um, but one of my favorite questions that we've asked recently is just what sort of world do you want to live in? You know, and I think I would offer that as a prompt and people can bring to it whatever they want. But, you know, I think it's really important when we answer that question to also ask ourselves, um, are your daily activities leading towards that? You know, there's, there's so often a disconnect between what we say we value and how we live our day-to-day lives. So ask yourself very honestly, what sort of world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a world where people are yelling at each other? Do you want to live in a world that tears people down? Do you want to live in a world that finds a way for all people to thrive? Are your day-to-day actions moving us in that direction? Um, So I guess that's a two-part question. It's a two-part question, but it's a a two-part question. question. Yeah. And, and they're both good questions, but you put them together uh, and um, you know, you got, you got a little uh, call to action there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to sit down with, with those two. And I hope other people who are listening will too, because I think that we may all be really surprised by what we come up with out of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fun conversation. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I feel like we could sit here and, you know, if, if you didn't have other places to be, we could just keep going all night. I know it's my fault. I'll accept that (laughs) responsibility. I apologize, but no, it, um, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for making the space and the time for the conversation and for what you're doing on your podcast. Thank you. That's it for this week. My thanks to John Noltner for joining me. You can find all his links in the show notes and to you for listening. You know, I talk to people all the time who are feeling totally lost, overwhelmed, and stuck creatively. And I know there are lots more of you out there who are feeling the same way. So I made something to help. Check out the link in your podcast app for my creative tune-up kit. It's 37 bucks, super affordable, and it's full of my favorite coaching tools to help you rediscover your creative self and make progress fast. I would love to get it into your hands so that you can get unstuck and create beautiful things this year. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. 